But if you'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17 this morning, I want to remind you where we started last, or where we finished last week. Paul had showed up in Berea, excuse me, in Thessalonica. He had left the, um, if you go to the next slide, in the, he had, I don't know if you can read that or not. Probably not. But in the upper left corner, you see a, a region called Thessalonica or an area called Macedonia. And up there, there's Philippi. And Paul's found himself in that area. And as he travels, he goes to the next city called Thessalonica. And when he got there, he preached for three Sabbaths concerning the things of Jesus Christ in the synagogue. And when he preached there, what he found was a lot of resistance. People listened, but just a few of the Jews were willing to respond to the gospel. They had an idea in their mind, and it was so instilled in them that God is only like this, that when Paul gives them the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies in the person of Jesus Christ, they're unwilling to accept it. So there are a couple there that receive the, the gospel message. They respond positively, but there's also a large group that go into the city of Thess Thessalonica. They leave the synagogue. They grab a bunch of what the Bible says, evil men, and they start basically rioting. And when I say rioting, I want to go ahead and draw from what we can culturally understand. They're going Ferguson on it. They're, they're upset that basically Paul is preaching this gospel that's contrary to what they believe. And so they are rioting. It's not pretty. It's not fun. You know, I, wouldn't, I don't know if they were looting or not, but they were basically making it very apparent that they were against the gospel that Paul was preaching. To the point that they got so violent that he had to leave the town and go somewhere else, leaving those who believed in Thessalonica to be able to live peaceably and to share their faith with individual people. But since Paul was kind of the fly in the ointment of their culture, he moved on to the next town while those that lived there could stay there and still continue to plant seeds where the ground was prepared. So then he traveled to Berea, and instead of finding resistance there, what he found was a group of believers in the synagogue, Jews, who received the word with all readiness. Acts chapter 17, verse 11 said that the Bereans were so noble, they were more fair-minded, meaning that they received the word with all readiness, but they didn't just receive it and take it at face value. They went home and they opened up their Bibles, they opened up the scriptures, and they said, let's see if what... Paul was saying is actually true, if it actually matches up with the inspired word of God, because he's just some guy. We don't know him. He just showed up in our town, started teaching. So we could reject it completely and say, well, that's not of God. Or we could receive it, listen, maybe take some notes, take it home and say, Lord, is this really what you have for me? And so they searched the scriptures, it says daily, to see if the things that Paul taught were so. And because of that testimony, those who received it, checked it out, tested it according to the word of God, they believed in the Messiah. They didn't walk away going, eh, I don't really see it. They, they weren't willing to just take it at face value, but they, they searched it deeper on their own. And so because of that, they became believers. They became disciples of Jesus Christ. So at that point, the ministry is going good, but then the people that were in Thessalonica that started the rioting, they heard that he was preaching in Berea and they got up and they traveled to Berea and they started rioting there. They stirred up the crowds to be against Paul. So every time the work of God is in a positive force, 
God's making and taking some ground for the gospel, there's always an opposition from the enemies of the Lord. Satan does not want the gospel to go forth. And so he'll do whatever he can to throw dust in the air and distract from what matters the most. And we see that because they travel to Berea basically to stir up confusion and strife so that no one will be able to listen to Paul's message. So the believers there in Berea, they take Paul and they say, hey, we're going to stay here, but we think you need to go somewhere else because this is keeping us from being effective. And so they send him. You might be able to see, I don't know if you can or not, the dotted line follows the coast on a ship via the sea down to a place called Athens. Now, Athens is in Greece. It's still a city today where you can go and visit. You can see all of the different, uh, basically, you can see all their old architecture. It's a beautiful city. It's a place that I would love to go one day just to see the buildings that they built years and years ago. So Paul shows up in Athens, and Timothy and Silas, who were traveling with him, they stay up in Berea until Paul calls for them. So that's where we find ourselves this week. Paul has moved on to a different town. My belief is that they sent him farther away than the people from Thessalonica could track him down. So he wouldn't be a distraction just in the next town over. That maybe he could be a little bit more effective if he was able to travel. So he went down to Athens and as he's waiting for Timothy and Silas, we find him this week there in verse 16. It says, while Paul waited for them at Athens... His spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. So Paul's walking around Athens and he desires to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the people there. But here's the problem. We can't share the gospel with people we don't know or understand. Oftentimes we see the caricature on TV or in the news when some guy shows up in a town, he puts a sandwich board on and he starts saying, repent! The end is near. Get right with God, you pagans. And he starts yelling at people and people get the wrong idea from that. They see that person screaming in the streets and they think, well, if he is of God, then God's angry and he's hurtful and he doesn't care about me. He just wants me to turn and burn. You know, we kind of get that idea. Well, that is his heart. Don't get me wrong. But God approaches us through the person of Jesus Christ. And I don't ever see Jesus saying, turn or burn to people that have never heard of God, Yahweh, anyway. What I do see is that Jesus showed up in the temples and was very upset when they were exchanging money and basically ripping off the people that came to the temple to worship. He was upset with the religious folks that were taking advantage of the people that didn't have much. In that sake, he said, hey, my house is supposed to be a a house of prayer to the nations. And you've made it a den of thieves. You're robbing people blind. He was a little upset with the religious folks. But with the people that have never heard of him before, he showed up in the Gentile regions and he just talked to them. He approached them, not based on anything other than, how's it going? Remember in John, early in John, he shows up with the woman at the well and he spoke to her And she starts asking him questions, and he starts answering them. He says, hey, woman, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking for me for water. They're standing at a well, and she's going, wait a minute. You don't have a pail to draw water out of the well. He says, but I'm living water. I'm the one who came to fulfill your thirsts and your hungers. 
And so she didn't get it. She was talking about water. He was talking about everlasting life. And so, but he continued to talk with her. And as he did, he revealed her character. And she said, you know, I, you know, he asked her, he said, well, where's your husband at? And she said, basically, well, I, I don't have a husband. And he said, you're right. You've had five husbands and the one you live with now is not your husband. You're not even married to him. And she was blown away because he saw past the veneer. He saw into her life things that no one else knew. And so he went, she went into the town and she said, come and meet this guy at the well that told me everything about myself, though I don't think he's ever met me. There's something more to this guy. And so the whole town, hearing her testimony, comes out and gets to talk to him, gets to meet Jesus Christ. Paul walks around the city of Athens. He shows up and he's familiar with Greek and Roman culture. He's an astute man, very smart. He studied with all the major philosophers. But what he doesn't do when he walks into Athens is he doesn't look around and go, look at all the awesome buildings. He's not enamored with that. The first thing that provokes him is that he sees the city is given over to the worship of false idols. It provokes him. The word there means that it it moves him so much that he's sick to his stomach. He's got to do something about it. It's the same idea of when I'm sitting in my living room and Lucy, who is one year old now, is learning to walk. She falls and hits her face on the wooden floor. Oh, it gets me every time because I care. It provokes me to do something about it, to comfort her, to, to be there for her, to kiss her on the head, to do something about it. That provoking, it moves you. So what happens with Paul is he sees that these people are trying to learn how to walk. They're trying to relink with God. We're going to see later that he tells them, I see that you're very religious. Religion is just us trying to relink with God. It's man's way of grasping for what we don't know. And what he's seeing in this town is as they're trying to grasp for God, they're not grasping for him based on what he said. They're grasping based on their own wisdom. So they start to build idols. They, they have pieces of metal, uh, stone, and they carve it into an image of what they think that God is. It's their way of trying to deal with this eternal perspective that they have built into their conscience, but they don't know how to deal with it. How do I get right with God? My own conscience shows me that something's not right. And unless I get right with God, I I can't deal with my eternity. What happens after I die? And so we try to deal with all these things in our own ways. And the world, what it does is it has little systems, religions to try to deal with death. Paul sees this in Athens and it provokes him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, verse 17, this is what he does because he was provoked. Therefore, he reasoned with them in the synagogue with the Jews. So he reasons with those in the synagogue. Number one, the the religious folks, those that had the written word of God. These Jews were more than likely not worshiping idols because the first commandment said that you shall have no other gods before you. You shall worship God and God alone. So he, he goes to them first. And then he reasons with the Gentile worshipers, those God-fearers who had seen the relationship the Israelites had with the the living God and they wanted that too and so they were drawing near. But then there's this third group. 
He doesn't just go to the synagogue. He actually goes to the marketplace. Now, we don't have an open-air market, but we got the town and country. Or in Farmington, we got the Walmarts. But we have these places where people will naturally, naturally gather. We have the fall festival. We have places where people show up that are there perhaps just to eat, but we can interact with them like Paul did. And it says here that he was in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. It doesn't say that he had a, an appointment. It just says that he was looking for people to interact with. He was looking for people to have conversations with. Let me ask you, do you ever schedule in an extra few minutes when you're getting ready to go shopping? Perhaps the Lord wants to intersect your, your path with somebody that needs to hear a message of hope about the gospel that you and I are partakers of. Paul was moved, so he spoke with people, and daily he spoke with those who happened to be in the market. And notice there that when he was in the market, a certain group there, it says then, verse 18, then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? What's he trying to say? And so they basically they're calling him a, uh, a sparrow, one who picks at philosophy. They find themselves very wise in the ways of the world and in philosophy. They find themselves to be very knowledgeable. And so when they heard Paul speak, and later in 1 Corinthians, that's what they say about Paul, basically, that he's not well-spoken. He wasn't a, a polished orator. And in that society, it wasn't just about the message you were giving, but it was all also how eloquent that you were when you gave it. I, I find comfort in this that Paul wasn't eloquent because there are many weeks where I'm like, I feel like I'm stumbling over my words. But God uses the, the weak and the unknowledgeable to confound the wise. I love that because I can relate to that. But Paul had this great influence in every town that he went to, but it doesn't say anything about how great he was. It actually says that he wasn't that great of an orator, but they call him basically a sparrow who picks at the food and sparrows just eat a little bit at a time. And they're basically, what they're saying about him is, what does this babbler have to say? He really, it seems like he doesn't really process all the things he learns about. He just picks and chooses little things from philosophy. He doesn't have a full knowledge like we do. And so they were mocking him. And they also asked the question, <clears throat> Well, they also said of him, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. See, these Epicurean and these Stoic philosophers, they're important because they kind of encapsulate the different views of the world that we have in this world. The people that do not follow Jesus, they've got different viewpoints, different worldviews through which they, they think and process information. The Epicureans were those that basically said, there's no point to life except to eat, drink, and be merry. In other words, there's no God, so the chief end of man is to experience all that you can. The chief end of man is to experience pleasure. And so we seek, this group would seek, what are the best foods I can eat? What are the uh, best uh, drinks that I can drink? What are the best movies and entertainment that I can take in? Life's all about experiencing things, so I want to experience all I can because after I die, there's nothing. That's what they believe. It's all about pleasure. 
Now, if you've ever experienced hardship in your life, and life is all about pleasure, then where's the hope in that? There is none. Because not all of us get to experience pleasure all the time, do we? Life's hard. So if the chief end of man is to experience pleasure, most people can't do that. By which to have the means to do that sometimes is difficult. And then there's this other group called Stoics. And they were the type that say, everything that happens to you, you're not in control of. And so if it happens to you, life is more than just about pleasure. It's not about pleasure. It's about enduring suffering and not letting it get to you. And so we have these two completely opposite ends of the spectrum. One group says, life is all about how you respond to it. And if you just bear up under it and don't let it affect you, then you'll get through. And the other side says, Experience all the pleasure you can, and that's the chief end of man. When you die, there's nothing. So Paul's speaking to these two groups. And they say he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he's preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. So these men, they took him, verse 19, they brought him to a place called the Areopagus. Will you hit the next slide, please, Steve? The Areopagus is this mount here. It's a raised place above the city. I was going to put another one in there, but I didn't get a chance. It's basically a panorama of the city of Athens. It's huge. But this is the place that you can look over the whole city, and there was a, basically a council of about 30 judges where they would get together, and anybody that had a, an idea about morals or religion, they would get together on the top of this hill, and they would discuss it. And they would judge, based on their own reasoning, what was right and what was wrong. Now, Areopagus, if translated, actually means Mars, the god of Mars. God called Mars. His name was Mars. So this is what you might have heard before called Mars Hill. And they would go up on Mars Hill, and this was kind of the epicenter of philosophy in Athens. This is where they would discuss religion, politics, and all of those things that we get all excited about. Uh, you know, it's funny nowadays in our culture, when you're at work, they always say, don't talk about religion. Don't talk about politics because people will get upset. Well, even back in the day, they had a place where they would do that. And so they got together and this group, they take Paul. They bring him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is of which you speak. For you're bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. Now, you've got to understand, they're not opposed to you adding a God to their pantheon. This, they have, uh, I read some historians this week, and they said in Athens, there was actually twenty to 30,000 idols in the city of Athens. It's not like there was just a couple statues. They had twenty to 30,000. They said it was actually easier to find an idol than a person in Athens. And so this culture wasn't just like a little small faction that was going to a little temple to worship their gods. This is a culture enamored with the worship of these tiny gods. Now, we don't see this in this way. We think of an idol, we think of a little statue. But in many ways, if someone else were to come to our culture, what would they think our idols were? Would they be family? Would they be sporting events? Would they be, I mean, you name it. Uh, many people, I grew up in a household where our idols were our sports cars. You know, 
If you were going to catch us on a Sunday, guess what we were doing? We were washing and waxing that thing again. That's not necessarily a bad thing. We need to be good stewards of the things God's given to us. But when we put them in front of God and make them our God, basically we become like our gods. Dead, cold, feelingless, lifeless. Actually, turn to Psalm chapter 135 if you've got a Bible with the Old Testament in it. I marked the page because I'm not used to this new Bible yet. Psalm chapter 135. This is a psalm that compares and contrasts the worship of one true living God versus the false gods that the other nations were worshiping. So it says in Psalm 135 verse 15, he writes there, he says, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, in other words, they would carve a mouth on it, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. The idea is, is that you become like the God that you worship. If you worship a living God, you will have a life that just speaks forth of real life. And if you have a God that can't move, can't breathe, can't hear, can't speak, you will become deaf and dumb and silent. You won't have anything to offer the culture that you live in. And so that's the comparison that basically Paul's going to make in Acts chapter 17. He's going to speak to this group and they've been bringing him. They saw him in the marketplace and they said, let's talk about this with all the philosophers. So imagine this, Paul's traveled all the way from Berea down to Athens, and as he gets there, he knows no one. He's walking around the city telling anybody who will listen about Jesus. He doesn't have a church to go to and proclaim it. He doesn't have a platform. He doesn't know anybody. He doesn't have a house to stay in. So as he's talking with people, referring them to the gospel, what happens? Men take him to this big stinking rock. Preach your message. Give us all you got, Paul. And Paul's like, yes, finally, a platform where I've got all these people that are open to the study of religion and morals, and I know their culture. I was raised in it. I was taught by the people that knew all the philosophers that we quote, like Aristotle. These are all the philosophers where Paul was taught from a young age. He had a very intelligent mind, and he had been given most of some of the most expensive education. So he knew their culture enough to speak into it, the gospel, and deal with the false teachings of their ideals. So they took him, they brought him to the Areopagus. They said, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you're bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. How cool is it? He's gone to a pagan culture. He's met people that want to know what he has to say. And so he's going to speak. Verse 21, for all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there, who were at this rock, here's what they spent their time doing. Nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. That's what they spent their time doing. They wanted to see something. They wanted to hear something. They wanted to gain more information, more knowledge. Because they thought, 
The more knowledge you get, the better off you are. And so, as they were there open to listening to him, Paul gets to speak. But what I want to point out about this culture, and this is what Warren Wearsby had to say, he's a commentator that I read. He said, the quest for novelty overshadows in the lives of many the search for reality. The quest for novelty overshadows the search for reality. And I think about this in my own life. Maybe this will relate to you. But many times I'm in the middle of my week, I'm worn out. I need a distraction from my reality that I live in. So I just want to take a break. So what do I do? Get my little phone, go through Facebook, and watch some stupid video. It makes me laugh, and I go on about my day. Now, is that wrong? No, not necessarily. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying the quest for novelty overshadows our search for reality. We try to escape life. God wants us to live it to the fullest. To enamor ourselves with entertainment is something that if we're not careful, overshadows our real needs. It distracts us from the things that matter the most. To be entertained or to be, um, what is the word, Uh, amused. Do you know what the word muse means? Means to think. Do you know what the word amuse means? Means to not think. So when we're being amused by the things that this world has to offer, they're not necessarily bad in and of themselves, but if we're not careful, they cause us to no longer think about the things that, that matter. And our lives are short anyway. So we have to be careful. What are we taking in? Where do we find our solace and our rest? The Lord wants us to find it in Him because we have perfect peace in His presence. He gives us joy. He brings us to the full realization of what this world has to offer and what He has to offer in contrast. So, Verse 22, he begins to preach. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and he said, men of Athens, he addresses them very respectfully. He says, I perceive, I notice, I sense, I've walked around your city. I perceive that in all things you are very religious. And they all would have agreed. They knew that they were religious. They were aware of that fact. This is not a new thing. He says, for as I was passing through and considering the objects that you worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. So in all of their worship, all of their interaction, all of their desire to seek something, they were grasping for God and trying to relink with him. That's what religion means, to relink with God. In all of that, they recognized that we you know, we're, we worship all these gods. There are 20 to 30,000 of them. Maybe we missed one. So, so that we don't offend one of those gods that we might have missed, let's make a statue and we'll put to the unknown God. And so there were people that would go to this little temple. They would worship this statue. They didn't know what it was, but they knew that there might be a God out there that was unknown. So they'd say, God that we might not know. I'm praying to you right now and I'm offering you food and giving incense and burning it to you just in case I missed you. And so Paul sees this. He doesn't say, you guys are idiots. Why are you worshiping something you don't know? He doesn't say that. What he says is, I notice you have a God that you don't know. Your own people recognize that there might be a God you don't know. 
This is who I'm coming to proclaim to you today. He says, therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. I recognize that you have a God that you're not sure about. Let me tell you about him. God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he does not dwell in temples made with hands. So this is in direct contrast to the temples and the idols that they worship. Because I don't know if you've ever been somewhere like this, but in third world countries and in places where they worship pagan idols, they will build little temples around this statue, a house for it, if you will. Now to me, if you can build a building that will encapsulate your God, you know, you guys ever see that uh, recent movie, uh, The Avengers? And in that movie, they've got, you know, the big green dude, what's his name? Uh, the Incredible Hulk. And <laughs> there's this other guy, and I can't remember his name, but he's supposed to be a god. And the Hulk takes him and he says, I'm a god, you must follow what I say. And the Incredible Hulk takes him up by the foot and he goes, bam, 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 like the old Flintstones. <laughs> bam, bam, bam. And he says, puny god. You know, <laughs> if you can build a building and fit your god in it, He's a puny God. Our God, he says, cannot fit in a temple that's built by human hands. He says he's the creator of heaven and earth, and he does not dwell in temples made with human hands. They had temples that they built for their gods, and their gods fit in there. Verse 25, Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. So he's not only the creator of heaven and earth, but he's also the one who sustains heaven and earth and every one of the people that has breath. We get our breath from him. That's what he tells them. And he has made, verse 26, from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and is determined our pre-appointed times and the boundaries of our dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. So stop there. He's saying God has brought every human being from one blood, and we know this because we have the written scripture in Genesis that says that Adam was created out of the dust. God breathed into him the breath of life. From his side, he created Eve using the side, we say the rib, but basically out of the side, he brought Eve. That's why she's called woman, meaning out of man. And from those two, God brought all the peoples that you and I now know. So whether we're one in Christ or not, we all descend from the same couple. Now it got narrowed down about the time of the flood through Noah's family. So we're also all Noah's descendants. I think that's pretty cool. But he says there, He's pre-appointed times and boundaries of our dwellings. God is above time and space. He knows where you and I will live before we're ever born. He's aware that this discussion that they're having at the Areopagus, he's lord over that even. He's orchestrated it before Paul even knew he was going to go to Athens. He's telling them God is in control of all things, whether you realize it or not. And he's done this, he's in charge of this, so that 
we should seek the Lord in the hope that we might grope for him and find him. And they were aware of that because they were seeking a relationship with God through their worship. Though it wasn't based on truth, it was based on superstition. And then Paul, verse 28, says, For in him, in God, we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. And that was a poem that was from their day and age, from one of their own secular poets, and he was talking about Zeus when he said, for in him, excuse me, when he said, for we are also his offspring. Paul says, no, we are the offspring of the living God that I serve. The one that you don't know, he's the one that created us, not Zeus. So he confronts them lovingly, and yet he doesn't um, change the message. He stays with the truth. Verse 29, therefore, since we're the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. In other words, these idols you worship, these idols that you serve, we ought not to think that God is like that because he's not. You're serving something that's a piece of stone, precious metal. In Isaiah, there's actually a passage that talks about how these men that would worship idols, they would take a tree, they would cut it down, they would cut one end of it off, split it into firewood, and cook their food over it. And the other end of the same exact tree, they would cut off, they would carve it into an idol, and they would worship it. (laughs) So, is your God really a good God? If you can burn him to make your food, you know, it kind of seems ironic. We worship something that we would use for a common use. <clears throat> Verse 30. Truly, these times of ignorance, God overlooked. He winked at them. He overlooked these times of ignorance, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent because... First of all, the word repent, what does it mean? It means to be going in a direction and have the Lord correct us to reveal to us the truth and then to confess to him, to say again, you're right, I'm wrong, to turn from our wicked ways and to turn back to him. That's what repentance is. Many churches that are alive and going today are going and they're not preaching that men has to repent before the Lord will save them. Repentance is the way that we come to our God. Not by saying, hey, I got something to offer you, but by saying, I'm wrong and you're right. And I know this because John the Baptist, the one that came before Jesus, his message was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then Jesus, the very first time he preached, he said, repent. That was his message. Turn from your wicked ways, turn to me. Turn to me and live. So Paul's message is not any different because he he says, repent because God has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has chosen. The word there in my transcription is ordained, but the idea of it is the man whom God has chosen. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So God's going to judge each and every person by the person of Jesus Christ. If you turn with me real quick to Romans chapter 6, 
Paul refers to this same idea of the resurrection. Chapter 6, verse 4, just a couple pages to the right. He says there in Romans 6, 4, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So those who humble themselves will be lifted up. If you will repent and die to your sinful lifestyle, God then raises you from the dead, not only gives you new, new birth, we're born again, but then after we die, we have the hope of the resurrection. He'll resurrect us and give us new bodies. I love this because that means that eat, drink, and be merry, and then nothing is not true. I love this because life's not just about endurance, but it's about seeking and living in the presence of God through suffering, through this life that can be very difficult. God wants to be in our lives and he wants to bring us through them as we trust in him and learn to cling tighter to him with the hope of the resurrection that this life isn't all there is to it. For many people say, well, you're, you become so earthly or heavenly good that you're of no earthly use. You're just trying to escape this world. No, I'm trying to bring as many people with me to escape the hopelessness of this world. And so he, he continues there in verse 32. Here's their response. Anytime there's a message about Jesus Christ, it causes division. There will be one group that will respond and they'll receive it. There will be a group that says, absolutely not, you're crazy. And there will be individuals that will receive some teaching and not others. From Scripture, I'm not talking about just somebody's soapbox, but I'm talking about when the Word of God is preached, there's always this division, not just in groups, but also in our hearts. God's trying to weed out all the junk and replace it with the truth. And so we have two options. We can respond to it in repentance and faith, or we can respond to it by mocking and explaining it away, basically saying, eh, that's not really for me. So when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Some of them said, you're nuts, Paul. And many people said this about Paul. They said, oh, you're just, you're crazy from too much learning. You've been spending too much time in your study. You need to be more aware of what's going on in the world around you. But some of them mocked him. While others said, we will hear you again on this matter. There was a group that was also saying, basically, tell me about it again later. I'm not really... I'm not really feeling you right now. Maybe we can talk about it again later. I don't really want to respond right now. So Paul, look at him. He departed from among them. This is like the first time in a while we've seen him preach where he didn't either get chased out, stoned nearly to death, or pulled out by his own brethren saying, hey, we got to get you out of here. He's actually able to preach the message and to leave peaceably. But also notice that it wasn't all for naught. There wasn't a huge response to the gospel, but there was a response. Verse 33, so Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius, who was an Areopagite. Remember I said there was 30 judges over this Areopagite council. One of them responded to the gospel. This would be a big decision for them. 
Because to respond to it and say, there's only one way to God in front of all these people means that basically they're going to start mocking him too. These are all people that held him in high esteem. He was in a place of prominence. But notice who else responds. Uh, it says there, a woman named Damaris. Now in that culture, for a woman to be hanging out on, the, on Mars Hill, reasoning with all the men, just a cultural thing, she wouldn't be known as an honorable woman. She would actually, it was an honorable thing in their culture for women to remain at home and to keep the house. And so for her to be hanging out with a bunch of dudes, she wouldn't be looked at very highly. So, but I just want to point out that there are many who receive the gospel that are from different walks of life. This woman was there amongst the men and she responded. Her being in a dishonorable spot, according to the world, ended up being her salvation. And there were those from high accord that responded and it was good for them. I guess my question for you this morning as we've gone through Paul's address here to the Athenians is <clears throat> when you're walking amidst those that you work with, when you're conversing with those that are in your families, extended families and close, when you're walking downtown and you're meeting up with people and, and you just are talking to the people that just so happen to be there, do you look past the veneer? Are you aware of only the outward stuff that they do? Or are you aware of the inward stuff? Are you paying attention to the things that they spend their time, efforts, and money doing? When you see things that are probably walls or barriers that keep them from serving the living God, when you see the things that they serve that are not God that will keep them from understanding that God loves them and has something to offer them. They don't have to just offer something to God. When you see the idols that are in people's lives, does it provoke you to pray for them? Does it provoke you to speak into their lives and to love them enough to say, hey, the road that you're on, it leads to destruction. But if you go through Jesus Christ, it will lead to everlasting life. We know that. And yet I think sometimes we feel oppression and pressures that tell us, well, you can't say that to people. That's offensive. Paul was not worried about offending people. He was worried that in the afterlife, in eternity, that there would be those people that would suffer and burn for eternity. He was desiring that they would have the same hope and experience the same hope. Paul was a guy that was all into philosophy and it, did, it took somebody provoking him, Jesus Christ, knocked him down on the road to Damascus, spoke to him hard truths. He said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you hurting my people? Don't you see that I've got more in store for your life than hunting down people and dragging them out of their homes? I'm going to give you a message of hope and I'm going to send you to other people. I want you to be bold. I want you to speak into their lives. And as you do that, I want you to watch their lives change from the inside out. These people, if they keep serving their gods, they're going to bust hell wide open. So we need to be aware of the idols that are in the people that are close to us life. We need to pray that God would release those strongholds, that he would remove all that stuff. And if need be, Give us the words to speak to them, to provoke them, to realize that what they're serving can't do anything for them. But then there's the other application. 
What are the idols that God's trying to weed out of you and I's life? What are the things that we serve with our time, our money, our talents? What are the things that we're putting in between us and God, putting in the place of prominence in our lives? God's not saying, he's not saying to you, how dare you? He's saying, you're not the first one. You've got idols. Turn to me. If you're feeling completely drained from serving those things that are coming before me, I want to fill you up. I want to give you life. Come to me. Receive. See, when they worship their gods, you know what they did? They'd get up every morning. They would go and they would literally take food, tie it in baggies, put it up next to their idol. They would take their time and their efforts and their money and food from the mouths of their kids. This is not a problem if it's a God who is able to accept that. These idols have mouths, but they can't eat that food. Our God doesn't need us to sustain him. He is self-sustaining. He was before you and I were ever created. He was, and he is. And he has something to offer us that those idols, those things that we serve, can't offer us. He wants to fill us with himself. He wants to be with us through this life. He wants to give us hope because he is hope. Christ in us, Colossians chapter 1 verse 27 says, Christ in us is the hope of glory. So if the things that you spend your time and your efforts serving leave you dry and empty, red flag, because you're not serving the living God who will never leave you dry. He will never leave you empty. He will fill you with what you need to your, do your job, to love your families, which is very hard. He will give you the energy to be all that he's called you to be. But you have to turn from those idols to him before that will ever take place because God will not take second place. He desires to be number one and he deserves it. Is he number one? So Father, thank you so much for the message that Paul preached to the Athenians. Lord, help us to take hold of it. Let us not walk away from this indictment against our culture and us as individuals. Lord, I confess to you that there are things that I spend my time and efforts and finances serving that become number one instead of you. And because of that, it robs me of joy. It robs me of being used by you. And Lord, I don't want to be robbed. I want to experience the freedom that a life and a relationship with you offer. And so Lord, Test our lives. Look into them. Reveal to us the things that are drawing us away from you and remove them. Lord, uh, help us to be able to remove the things that draw us away from you. And in the meantime, Lord, thank you for being willing to speak into our lives through a message like Paul shared. Give us a heart for the people around us that's the same. Help us to look at them, not in a way to judge them because you have the ultimate say. You know where they're at. But Lord, help us to give a heart for them, to have a heart for them like you do, to see idols, to confront them, and to speak into them uh, the, the hope that is in Jesus Christ. Father, reveal your light into the dark areas of our lives, and in doing that, shine your light on this valley so that individuals will be released from the bondage of sin released from the bondage of darkness and unawareness of who you are. And Lord, make us aware of the reality around us. Help us to see people for who they really are 
and to pray for them till they accept Jesus Christ and to get to enjoy an abundant life with him for eternity. So Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for serving us. Help us to serve others as you have first served us. In Jesus' name, amen.